It's the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And today, Innocence, Guilt, and Science. On August 14, 1989, Gary Dotson walked out of a Chicago courtroom cleared of a rape charge that had sent him to prison 10 years earlier. The conviction was thrown out thanks to a then-new technology, DNA profiling, sometimes referred to as DNA fingerprinting. Dotson was the very first person ever to be exonerated by DNA evidence. Of course, we're all familiar with it now. In the last 25 years, DNA has helped to free hundreds of people who were doing time for crimes they didn't commit, some of them facing the death penalty. And DNA didn't just show that the system had nailed the wrong guys. It showed something just as important, how all kinds of evidence had been used to reach those wrongful conclusions. In providing a more exacting method of matching people to physical evidence, it exposed just how inexact and undependable traditional methods could be. I mean, we're talking about everything from eyewitness testimony to confessions to a whole battery of crime-solving techniques that we have come to know as forensic science. In case after case, those things had failed, and failed disastrously. Jim Dwyer is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who writes for the New York Times. He previously reported for New York Newsday and the New York Daily News, and he has spent years covering DNA exonerations. Earlier this year, he came out with an interactive ebook called False Conviction. It's full of case histories where supposedly reliable evidence led the justice system astray. The book uses all kinds of multimedia to show the various ways that police and prosecutors and juries went wrong and how a lot of so-called forensic science may not be so scientific after all. You can watch actual videos of false confessions. You can test your own powers of observation and be prepared to be disappointed in yourself. You can try your hand at ballistic analysis and fingerprint examination and more. After reading and interacting with the book myself, I got in touch with Jim Dwyer this past week. Jim, you end your book, False Conviction, with a kind of call to action. It is time to awaken? Yes. Awaken to what? Well, awaken to the reality of our own uh, ignorance, I guess, and the facts and the ways we figure out what's true and what's not. Was there a moment when you awakened? I've been covering the subject for almost 25 years since uh, DNA first was introduced into the courts. And, you know, at the beginning, I thought, oh, this is just kind of a fluky thing, you know, a one-off situation where some old evidence is available. It's very cool. It's very novel technology. And at the beginning, that was the thing that attracted my attention, and I would say a lot of other reporters' attention. You know, the amazing... Jurassic Park type of technology that lets you peer back into old evidence from a crime 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and still be able to tease out DNA samples. But as time went on, what became apparent to me was the most important thing was not how people were getting out of prison, it was how they were getting into it in the first place as the cases started to mount up where people were exonerated on what seemed to be compelling evidence, you had to go back and say, well, what was so compelling about that evidence, or why did I think it was compelling, and how could it have been wrong? And we're talking about all classes of evidence, eyewitnesses, confessions, informants, forensic evidence even. We always knew that those things could go wrong, because of course there were convictions overturned and people exonerated before there was ever any science of DNA. Right. New witnesses would come forward or new evidence would surface or, or malfeasance on the part of police or prosecutors was exposed. Things would happen. Um, but DNA really was kind of a sea change. Yeah, because it made it possible to get a lot of those discussions out of a he said, he said, she said, she said type of debate and put some clarity, some definitiveness, some baseline reality into the discussions. And that was the sea change that DNA provided. It's like the invention of a yard, you know, whoever first figured out a yard, you know, uh, this is what a yard is. It's a certain distance. DNA said, here is the reality of the 
physical presence of the criminal. So it was our first reliable yardstick. And and that in itself, I think, is still news that hasn't gotten out there, that all those other things that we thought were so scientific, were so reliable that we would stake a uh, conviction on, weren't so reliable. And, and DNA helped show that by overturning uh, various convictions in which there was ample, quote-unquote, evidence of guilt, right, uh, through other forensic means. That's right. Yeah, there were a lot of things that people used to look to, like, for instance, in the classic is hair samples, like you'd find a hair on the crime victim's body, and you'd say, oh, that comes from this person, and so therefore they must be the killer. But it turns out that hair evidence is very, very weak. The hair examination and matching, so-called matching, really had no scientific basis. You couldn't get hair examiners to agree on what the relevant characteristics of two shafts of hair were. Even before DNA, back in the 1970s, the Justice Department had a, um, a pilot program where they tested hair examiners. And, you know, they sent out, I don't know, 50 hair samples to 50 hair examiners, and they got 30 different replies on whether they matched a certain suspect or not. And that was when they knew they were being tested, by the way. It's, you know, as if a restaurant knew that a restaurant critic was <laughs> arriving, you know, so they could at least, uh, you know, not put out the day-old fish. These were people who knew they were being tested, and yet there was no scientific agreement. There was no basis for a scientific agreement. But, it, you know, the, the interesting thing is the origins of our search for science in criminal investigations and forensics really goes back to the 1920s and the 1930s when the country became aware of what the, was called the third degree. Uh, these were ways of extracting confessions from people through physical force. People were, you know, universally revolted by it, and the, and the Supreme Court finally came down and said, look, you cannot beat a person and consider that confession to be reliable. We don't do trials by ordeal here in this country. And there was a generation of new law enforcement people coming along who wanted to uh, introduce a more rational, colder look at things rather than just getting mad at somebody and thinking they did it and making them say they did it. Uh, and so th out of that movement, that reform movement, the crime laboratories began to be developed first in Chicago, in part inspired by the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh, you know, there was a bunch of gangsters lined up in a garage on St. Valentine's Day, uh, 1929, and, and they were all gunned down. And there was some suspicion that the police had been involved in the assassinations because some of the assassins apparently were wearing police uniforms. The coroner had collected all the shells from the scene of the killing, and there was a guy in New York, a colonel from the United States Army, a retired colonel, who had made a study of rifling marks on bullets after they were fired. And he tested all of the machine guns that were in the possession of the Chicago Police Department and came to the conclusion that none of them could have fired the bullets that were collected from the scene of the crime. So that actually inspired the jury, the coroner's jury, uh, the chairman, of, the foreman of that jury, to, to fund a laboratory where scientific procedures would be developed for solving crimes. Which uh, became the FBI Crime Lab? The FBI Crime Lab was a, another branch on that same reform tree. Uh, Hoover was then about to take over, had just taken over the FBI, and he wanted to be on top of all of that stuff. And so he hired uh, all kinds of people who said they could detect footprints through plaster casts, that they had uh, almost supernatural powers at... Uh, identifying physical evidence in ways that today we would consider absurd. But back then, they sounded like they were really scientific and cool. Of course, one of the cornerstones, and you just you just mentioned it, was ballistics yeah. analysis. Look at a bullet. It should have some grooves in it that precisely match the gun it came from. And, you know, a lot of us uh, pretty much believe that. We still hear about this all the time. But uh, as your book shows with so many of these forensic disciplines, there's a lot of holes there. 
yeah, you could tell the difference between a 22 and a 38, I imagine, but can you really match it to the gun always? No, you can't. You cannot always. There's all kinds of things that happen to bullets as they're being fired. The rifling, that's the process by which marks are left on the bullet as it goes through the barrel of the gun. <clears throat> the rifling, you know, is thought to be the signature, but the rifling is not permanent, and bullets get distorted once they've struck objects, and, and it's, it becomes uh, less and less certain. You do have the ability kind of to sort out between species of bullets. As you say, you can sort a twenty two from a thirty eight and things like that, but the finer grain identifications become less and less reliable. And by the way, um, for those of us who thought the third degree just meant sitting under a bright light and being grilled verbally, your description of what was apparently widespread practice among police investigators in those days includes this. Um, suspects were held incommunicado for days. They were beaten with fists, belts, bats, and rubber hoses. Some were burned with cigarettes or manacled steam pipes. Others were dunked under water and kept there to the point of drowning or seated under bright lights and kept awake to the point of delirium. They were hung out of windows by the ankles. Their teeth and gums were probed and jabbed with sharp dental instruments. So that kind of torture was happening. And you're saying as part of a reform movement, uh, the shift was made to what was thought to be, you know, sort of objective, cool, analytical, scientific means. But your book walks through a lot of these things that, um, again, I think the general public uh, hears about all the time and, and has faith in. Everything from hair analysis that you just talked about to bite mark analysis. Oh, yeah. You know, matching people's teeth to bite marks uh, on corpses, you know, in murder cases. This turns out to be one of the worst of the worst of the fake disciplines. I mean, um, you tell some horror stories in the book about people convicted based on bite mark evidence that was complete garbage. Well, first of all, your teeth are not immobile in your mouth over time. They, they wear down, they shift a little bit. But also, when you bite into a baguette and when you bite into a hot dog, you don't leave the same bite marks. And biting into a piece of human flesh is not necessarily something you can find by looking at how somebody bit into a stick of chewing gum. There's a number of cases down in the South where, uh, the Southeast, where in particular where a, a so-called forensic odontologist would go from one crime scene to another and basically give whatever result to confirm the suspicions of the investigators that they wanted. So if somebody was a suspect, they would compare the person's bite mark theoretically through a you know, something they would chew into, and they would compare it to what were thought to be bite marks on a corpse. In at least two cases that we know about, this odontologist looked at the real criminal and at his bite marks and cleared him and then proceeded to testify against an innocent person in court and say, I know beyond doubt, beyond all question, that this is the person who left the bite marks in that poor little baby who was killed. And years later, it emerged that actually the the person that the forensic odontologist had cleared was the one who actually left the bite mark. Or, in many cases, Jim, uh, there were no bite marks. This guy was finding bite marks all over the place from in abrasions and cuts of other kinds, right? That, that's right. That's right. They, they, whether something was left by a, a, an insect or... You know, unfortunately, uh, through the deterioration of a body and, let's say, some you know body that's pulled out of the water, and there's just not good preservation of impression evidence. That's what a bite mark is called. The other interesting thing is the poor juries would be sitting there, and they would get testimony. The defense would put up their forensic odontologist who'd say, no, this has nothing to do with the suspect, and the prosecution would put up a guy say the opposite. And you wonder what kind of science that is. Imagine if somebody came in and said, it's type A blood, and another person come in and say, no, it's type O blood, you know, you would say, well, is this science at all? Now, that doesn't usually happen because blood typing is fairly rigorous and well-established. And the reason for that is actually kind of interesting in why forensic science and, let's say, medical science have diverged so much. In forensic science, there was no broad base of testing its reality. So, bite marks. You never really knew 
whether somebody was right or wrong in declaring a bite mark to be evidence of a crime. In medicine, you knew that blood types mattered because if you gave a person the wrong blood type, they'd get sick and die, or they'd you know, get very, very sick if they didn't die. There was kind of a rigorous body of reality against which to test a lot of medical science. And that body of reality did not exist and does not exist for the forensic sciences, with the exception of, of DNA, which of course has non-forensic applications. So things that have no use outside the courtroom, outside a criminal investigation, don't get tested in, a, say, the corporate environment of a pharmaceutical company or a, in hospital practice every day. Yeah, well, this is the stunning and shocking thing, again, for those of us who are naive on these matters in reading a book like yours, which is that what gets called forensic science does not have the foundations uh, that the real sciences have. They have a lot of checks and balances. Um, you're supposed to apply statistical tests. You're supposed to have a large body of reference data with which to compare a sample. You're supposed to do studies that if you were to make a claim that uh, hair can be matched uniquely to one individual, well, you damn well better have surveyed a huge number of individuals in the general population and made sure that's true. None of that has happened, from what I can tell, in, again, the so-called forensic sciences. And it goes even further than these, these sort of fringe specialties like hair matching or, say, handwriting analysis and things like that. It even hits at things we thought were really strongly founded in empirical science, and that is like fingerprint analysis, right? You have the notorious case that a lot of people uh, probably know about of uh, Brandon Mayfield, uh, a lawyer from Portland, Oregon, who was initially identified by the FBI as the guy whose fingerprints were found on like some detonation materials in the uh, Madrid train bombing uh, of 2004 that killed a couple hundred people. Um, this guy had nothing to do with the crime, but there were some elements of his fingerprint that matched the print they got from the crime scene. It was not a perfect match because, as so often happens, um, crime scene prints are kind of smudged in various places, but they felt so confident that they were ready to, they dragged this guy in. I mean, they were going to, yeah. they were going to charge him. Well, the interesting thing about that case, among many interesting features of it, is that he hired his own fingerprint expert and his own fingerprint expert concurred with the FBI and said, well, with some caveats. Uh, and so actually you had four different experts, and I would say put the word experts in, in quotes, but you know, four different people who had experience in this, examining the prints from the bag that the detonator was in, and the suspect, Brandon Mayfield, and they all came to the same conclusion that, yeah, this was, this was a, a match. It turns out there's a thing that we all know in our own daily lives, that we can, ideas can be put in our heads and we see things that uh, aren't necessarily there when they're suggested to us. It's called observation bias. In the case of the fingerprint examinations, everyone after the first examiner knew that this was the Madrid bombing case and knew that the suspect had been identified as the source of the fingerprint. And they all essentially just ratified what had happened before. They started to see uh, factors in the fingerprints, little whorls and swirls and ridges that really weren't there. But if you looked close enough and thought about it long enough, maybe you'd see them there because maybe behind the smudge there's really a, a ridge, maybe there's a whorl, and maybe I can say, yeah, that's one of the 12 defining characteristics. Fingerprints... I don't think anyone has ever shown that they are not unique. On the other hand, no one has ever proven that they're unique. But it's not a question of proving their uniqueness or not. It's a question of getting people to replicate results in a reliable way, of having standards. Those standards have been very mushy. The FBI has, after the Brandon Mayfield case, has done a lot to uh, try and stiffen them up. One thing that happened is um, a um, behavioral psychologist 
Etienne Drawer, who, who actually, with the consent of fingerprint examiners, sent them some fingerprints that they themselves had identified years earlier in other cases. He went to the archives, got the, their old fingerprint examinations out, and suggested that maybe the Madrid fingerprint bomber was in here. And because the examiners were so concerned about the mistakes that had been made in the Madrid case, 17% of them changed their original match declaration. These were things they had once matched, but now almost one in five of them were saying, um, no, they're not really a match. So we're very susceptible to, to being nudged, in, even in the laboratory. Well, again, you know, hard science uh, has safeguards against this. You know, when you do a study like that, you're supposed to do a blind study where you don't know whether, let's say, the sample you're looking at came from the control group who was given a placebo or the test group that was given the drug that you're testing. You're not supposed to know. You're supposed to be analyzing the data without having any ability to uh, lean in one direction or another based on your preconceptions. But that's not done so much in forensic fields, right? It's, it's not done nearly as much as it ought to be. Uh, the National Academy of Science did a fairly long report on this, I guess, uh, about two or three years ago. And, you know, they said this, this, this area really is very, very weak, you know, and it does not do these replicability standards. And, it, and, and, you know, what's the error rate? If you ask the FBI about fingerprint error rates, they'll say the error rate is zero. We either declare something a match or it's not a match, and we're never, we never hedge. But not, nobody has an error rate of zero. Nobody. Right. I mean, there, there, is, there is nothing on earth that has an error rate of zero that I'm yeah. aware of. When it was found that Brandon Mayfield, the prime suspect in the Madrid yeah. bombing, when it was found that his print matched the print from the crime scene and that same print also matched the guy who was ultimately accused, or was he convicted? Uh I don't think he was ever convicted. I think he's been he's died in the meantime. Oh, okay, okay. But the guy they think is the real culprit, the yeah. Algerian guy with terrorist connections, right. they both matched the uh, the print that was taken from the crime scene. And, and uh, fingerprint experts said, well, this is unprecedented. We've never seen this before. Well, given the fact that we were looking at a really high-profile crime that got tremendous scrutiny from large teams, you know, in Spain and here in the U.S. with the FBI, you know, maybe there are many more such incidents that never got the kind of attention that would have exposed this problem. Well, I think that's that's true, and I, I think the fact that you had two completely different jurisdictions coming to different conclusions. The Spanish, they have several investigating agencies that were involved in this thing, and they were all watching different bands and cells of uh, extremists you know, they had a pretty good idea of who was involved in the Madrid bombings quickly, and they had never heard of this American being around there. So they were very suspicious from the beginning, or very skeptical from the beginning, when the FBI said, well, we, we checked the fingerprint from the bag that you sent us, and it looks like it's this guy, Brandon Mayfield. Well, Brandon Mayfield hadn't been out of the United States in 10 years before the crime. Right. Uh, neither he nor his wife had been out of, you know, he had this passport showed that, and uh, he was practicing law up in Portland. There were some contextual clues that led the FBI astray, or helped, I think, to lead them astray. Mr. Mayfield had been a United States Army captain. He married uh, a woman who was um, a practicing Muslim, and he himself uh, converted to Islam, and he had clients. He was a lawyer when he got back to the States. And he had clients who were regarded as extremists in Portland. Now, most of the time, he seemed to be handling things like real estate closings and fairly garden-variety legal work. Uh, but in explaining how they may have come to the wrong decision, some of the uh, FBI analysts, one of them was quoted saying, well, this guy was not the Maytag repairman. Uh, you know, you get this extraneous information that kind of steers people wrong or can steer people wrong. Yeah, and we should make it clear that in all these sciences, ultimately, after the evidence has been examined, it comes down to a human judgment call. Some expert says, I think this is good enough. This is enough to uh, to run with. Um, so in the case of fingerprint analysis, I think I might have always imagined that you take two perfectly clean prints, one found at the crime scene, the other from the suspect, 
you maybe overlap the images and there's a perfect they're identical. There's just no way to doubt it. Now, what you actually do is you get usually an incomplete print off the crime scene, and you look right. and you look at various spots where it might match. It seems to match the um, suspect's print, and you know you look at features like a a little split here in one of the lines, or a little loop there, or a little whorl there, and you say, "I've got enough." And that's always a human call. There is no universal standard for that, how many features have to match, how closely they have to match. There's schisms within the forensic community about what constitutes a match, but I don't think there's a, an unambiguous single standard that all examiners that, uh, you know must rely on in the same way that when type A blood is detected, that's because the antigens for type A blood are found and they react with your test. Thing. That's not how it works with fingerprints. I mean, and also, you know, look, for instance, the, the thing where they found the detonators, it was a plastic bag in the back of a stolen car parked near one of the stations where the bombs had been planted in Madrid, or outside of Madrid. And, and the plastic bag is, you know, we all have carried these plastic bags home from the grocery, and, they, you know, you kind of bunch them up in your hand, and how you leave a fingerprint on that is very much a random event. But what's in the files when you go to give your fingerprints for a job or for uh, when you've been arrested, the fingerprints that are in a file are done in a very controlled setting. You have to now they scan your hand, but uh, you know you used to have to roll the ink. You roll your finger fingerprints in the ink and then right. put them on the card and all that stuff. Right. Um, and that's very controlled. And if there was a blur or a smear, they'd make you do it again. The plastic bag, though, there's no control over that. So it comes down to um, often expert testimony in a courtroom. Someone who says, I'm an expert on fingerprints. Someone who says, I'm an expert on hair analysis or <laughs> forensic uh, odontology yeah. or handwriting or psychology. Uh, there are just a lot of different fields. And, again, we have been relying on these folks uh, in many cases. Juries have to rely on them to make sometimes life-and-death decisions or certainly life-altering decisions. And that business, the expert witness business, um, also is, uh, well, it's a lot shakier than a lot of us would have hoped or imagined. Um, there was a, a documentary I'm sure you know quite well, The Real CSI by Frontline, a mm -hmm. couple of years ago. Yep. I guess it was produced with... Uh, with the help of ProPublica and also uh, Lowell Bergman of uh, mm -hmm. of the UC Berkeley uh, Grad School of Journalism, and they looked into some of these institutes that um, that certify experts, forensic experts, right. that give you the kind of credentials that would allow you to walk into a courtroom and testify, maybe tilt the case one way or another in a big way. And it turns out. Uh, at least some of them are true diploma mills. Uh, Lowell Bergman had a grad student who just went and, um, you know, in in a very short amount of time, uh, sent in her registration fee to one of these institutes, took an open book exam, and voila, had a certificate that she could then trot around. It's a rubber stamp process. Mm -hmm. Like uh, children's soccer, everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that I could start parading myself, uh, that I could start passing myself off as an expert in some obscure field uh, and make some good money in the process, by the way. You can make a good living at some of these things. Again, really uh, disturbing. Um, your book doesn't get into the expert witness side of things, but I'm sure you've had plenty of experience with that in your reporting. Yeah, and I, you know, I think we should also look at not only the supply side, but the demand side, right? There's a demand for certainty. We as humans like to have stories that have an ending, that have a clear sense of vindication in them that if there's been a wrong done, that we've corrected the wrong by, by punishing the guilty party. And that, I think, is the driving impulse in a lot of what you see in courts. And, and, and we're willing to cut corners and we're willing to suspend disbelief willing to tolerate things that uh, were at our own hide that was on the line, we wouldn't allow it all. We have a case in New York that was, just was the subject of a documentary by uh, Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and David McMahon called The Central Park Five. There was a jogger who was uh, raped 
chased and beaten nearly to death in Central Park, and she had no recollection of what happened to her. She was thought she was going to die. She was discovered. And uh, some kids who had been rounded up because they were causing other trouble in the park that night eventually confessed to the crime. And their confessions were terrible. They were full of mistakes about where, when, and how it had happened. But they were 14, 15 years old. They'd been held for 24 hours. They were put through a lot of questioning, lots and lots, you know, over and over and over again. One guy was told that the other guy had told on him, so he, he retaliated by telling on his friend. And, and they didn't really know what had happened. But when the case came to trial, I remember it so vividly that even though there was these nagging inconsistencies in the confessions, and it just didn't seem to make sense. How could they get the place wrong where it happened? Or how could they each one tell a different story of how it started? That was all put aside because in New York at that time, people wanted justice. Actually, they didn't want justice. They called it justice, but what they really wanted was a sense of completion and fullness that this thing had been dealt with and, and the bad people had been put away and punished and kept away from society. And five teenagers were convicted and two separate trials were held of the, you know, two kids in one trial, three in the other. And the convictions were ratified by the juries, 24 jurors in two cases. Then they were heard by an appellate division court, three judges in each of those. And then the New York State Court of Appeals, nine judges. You know, by the time you were done, you, you probably had 12 or 15 judges plus 24 jurors, prosecutors, lawyers, everybody saying, yeah, these are the ones who did it. We're all convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet it turned out years later when a uh, serial rapist and killer had, had came forward and admitted that he had alone had attacked the jogger. Well, it turned out his DNA was the only DNA that was found on her body. And um, the forensic evidence that had been used to link one of the teenagers, uh, hair evidence, a match, that supposedly some of the jogger's hair was found on this boy's uh, clothing and in his body, uh, it turned out it didn't come from the jogger at all. You know, DNA tests showed that it, was, it had not come from her. I think, though, there was so much institutional firepower that was directed at solving this crime. There was such public outrage. Donald Trump was taking out ads in the New York newspapers calling for the restoration of the death penalty. And Pat Buchanan wrote columns saying that uh, they ought to build a gallows in Central Park and string them up, and that would put the end, an end to this. And then people with less sort of bloodthirsty responses also felt very strongly that this was a terrible crime that had to be righted. And um, people were glad to have someone take the fall for it. And I think that's why we tolerate these phony baloney forensic odontologists and these other kinds of uh, quacks who come into court and peddle fake science. And you are listening to The 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, Innocence, Guilt, and Science. I'm talking to Jim Dwyer of the New York Times, who has reported extensively on cases where people have gone to prison for crimes they didn't commit. He's the author of False Conviction, an interactive ebook that shows just how unreliable traditional evidence can be and how much of forensic science may not be so scientific after all. We'll get back to the interview right after these announcements. And now back to today's interview with Jim Dwyer of the New York Times. He's the author of False Conviction, Innocence, Guilt, and Science. It's about the ways that criminal investigations and traditional forensic science can go wrong and how we can do better. Uh, you know, the courts have gotten more rigorous in screening this stuff. The Supreme Court now demands, at least in civil cases, that there be an error rate disclosed for any test before it's considered a admissible evidence. So there's a, you know, I think a growing sense that a lot of the tactics that we've used in the past don't work. One of the really great insights that I gained in researching the book came from um, a lawyer and a guy who was a fellow at the National Institute of Justice, a man named James Doyle, who's advocating that, that the criminal justice system take the body of error that has developed over the last 20 years or so, particularly from the DNA era, and look at those things not as a way of saying, 
you're a bad police officer, you were a bad prosecutor, you're a bad judge, you were bad jurors. But look at it from the perspective of how did the system break down. As they say, in the hard sciences, there are protocols and lots of people and institutional traditions built around inspecting, picking apart, going back and, uh, you know, doing postmortems and finding where mistakes are made. Now, in our criminal justice system, though, it seems like, and again, I may be naive here, so you please correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but it seems like everything militates against that. Once an investigation, and especially a trial, is underway, there's a tremendous momentum that develops and a huge pressure to close things and to get, um, you know, a decisive result and then not reinspect it. I mean, the bar is very high for appealing and then, oh, my God, exoneration. The bar is extremely high. And, you know, again and again, it seems to me that the higher courts have expressed the fact that the state has an interest in closing things, right, and not reopening them and dragging processes out and so on. So it's almost like the culture of criminal justice is working against the kinds of uh, reflection and self-criticism that you're talking about. Yes, I mean, and, and there's a lot of impulses at work there, right, because the courts do have an interest in not revisiting endlessly yeah. you know, the, the, yeah. the, the same matter. You know, you do have a, a trial where the facts are laid out, and that typically is supposed to be the end of the fact-finding process. But what DNA has shown us and has really sort of driven a wedge into that presumption that, hey, we know what happened, the facts were established at a trial, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. And and by the way, you know, I've been taking a lot of pokes at forensic science uh, so far. Your uh, your book also takes aim, though, at uh, sort of old-fashioned evidence <laughs> that is eyewitness testimony and confessions. Both of them, too, can be incredibly flawed. And you've got a number of really powerful illustrations of that in the case of confessions, I mean, you've even got videos of people falsely confessing to heinous crimes after long bouts of interrogation. Um, yeah. There's Frank Sterling, a guy who was um, convicted of a murder in upstate New York. Uh, when was it? And Was it in the 80s? I think it was the, maybe the early 90s. Early yeah. 90s, yeah. And this poor guy went without sleep for almost 48 hours. Uh, he was a trucker, so he came into the interrogation already sleep-deprived and was kept up even longer uh, by a relentless uh, interrogation, very leading, that eventually just broke him, and he confessed to something he did not do, you know. Uh, and these detectives were just convinced of a theory they had, which, you know, seemed preposterous to me, reading the, the background. But they just went with it, and uh, they got their confession. This guy went to prison for a very long time until he was ultimately exonerated. That's right, yeah. The confession in that case, and, and also, for instance, in the Central Park Five case, you know, one of the things it does is uh, it not only leads to a wrongful conviction, but it leads to wrongful liberty. Yeah. The, so the real killer or the real rapist, depending on the kind of crime, is free while an innocent proxy is, is sent to sit in jail. And the investigation ends and therefore, you know, leads yeah. that could have been followed up on are not followed up on. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's right. And it, and, uh, it happens in Sterling's case that the real guy eventually was was linked to it after he had committed yet other murders years later in in the central park 5 case the guy who actually attacked the jogger went on to do a whole rampage of rape and maiming and murder for three more months before he was actually finally caught by a building porter when he was uh, running out of uh, an apartment where he had attacked yet another woman and he was a guy who actually had uh, the police had had their eye on for something else, and they kind of dropped the ball once they picked up the Central Park Five. Well, they got these kids very fast. Um, they pushed hard on the interrogations. Uh, these are young kids, 14, 15. They wanted to go home. They were scared. As you say, they were told that they'd been falsely fingered by other guys, and so they uh, turned the tables on them. Uh, they were fed all kinds of leading details to put into their confessions. And, uh, yeah, it was it was just a horrible um, miscarriage of justice. And, by the way, I'd recommend anybody who hasn't already seen it see the documentary, uh, The Central Park Five, by uh, Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and David McMahon. 
in which you featured prominently, actually, because you were covering that case uh, right from the beginning. Is that right? Well, I, I didn't cover it um, in 1989 at the time of the crime and the arrest, but I covered the two trials that uh, followed uh, over the next couple of years. Yeah, and you had you had suspicions. I think you've said somewhere that you didn't voice them as loudly as you wish you had. Yeah, I couldn't understand how um, 14-year-old kids were saying the things that were being attributed to them uh, in the statements. They just didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard out of a 14-year-old's mouth. And I raised that, but I didn't you know, jump up and down and say these guys are being railroaded because I guess I uh, didn't have the guts to do that. And um, in many of these notorious cases, what happens is a kind of centrifuge develops where you're pinned into place and you, you don't get out of that spot. So I did cover that case when uh, it was on trial. And then uh, when the real attacker emerged 12 years later, I uh, covered that pretty extensively. Um, you referred to it in the uh, documentary as a proxy war. You know, the details of this case fit uh, pre-existing narrative so perfectly. It was tailor-made for hysteria for um, uh, endless media coverage. And of course, everybody who, who reads the newspaper or watches the news knew about it. The Central Park jogger case. You had a period uh, in the late 80s when eh, the nation felt like it was in the grip of a crime wave, right? There was the crack mm -hmm. wars, things like that. Central Park, you had a group of kids raging through the park doing what... <laughs> the press called wilding. I don't know if that ever really was a slang term that that youth themselves used. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they used it, uh, that word themselves. They certainly were out, uh, and there was a large group of kids out there who were causing trouble for other people. And, and you know, the five who were convicted of the the jogger crime were, were um, they, were, they had some involvement and some of them were tangentially, they were involved in some of it. But there, were, there were kids doing really bad stuff in the park that night. And, uh, and there was a lot of alarm about that, and, and rightfully so. That, you know, people out for a bike ride or out for a jog were getting hassled, or in one case a man was beaten up. And, you know, that's stuff that one can be righteously angry about. Sure, it. sure. But let's go on with some of the, the things that fit stereotypes. These kids were all kids who were black or Latino. Um, the woman who was attacked, the, the jogger, was an investment banker uh, referred to by colleagues, I guess, as a golden girl. And so a lot of, you know, well-off folks and, and New Yorkers could identify with her. They could also identify with a fear of savage youth of color, right? And so it just fit everybody's notion of society under attack, right? And so the fact that the police got these kids to confess really quickly, had their culprits, made everybody breathe a bit easier. And as you're saying, this is what happens in these um, real high-profile cases. A narrative seizes hold in the minds of investigators, prosecutors, and the general public, the press, Donald Trump, who wants to hang him high. Yeah. Uh, right? Skip the trial. <laughs> yeah. But, by the way, I, you know, I, I, I think to some extent that dynamic can be seen uh, in Ferguson. We don't know a lot about what happened in Missouri. And uh, we had a march here in New York City last weekend uh, de demanding, uh, you know, the former governor of New York State was in a march saying, we will not stop protesting until someone goes to jail and uh, or this person goes to jail. Well, uh, you know, that's a, not a good formula for justice, and it's not a good formula for truth-finding. Mobs, the mobs that uh, formed around the Central Park Five had no more wisdom than you know necessarily any other mob and 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 i i think that that dynamic is one that we need to be suspicious of in all circumstances i'm glad you brought that up jim because i was going to do it uh and uh you know just reflecting personally uh you know i have my own narratives i carry around i have my own preconceptions and when a case surfaces that seems to fit them i'm inclined to draw premature conclusions and i'm constantly taking cases like the Central Park Five and using them to sort of say to myself, hold off, just wait, just wait. Yeah. Let the investigation take place. You know, what do I know? I know nothing. Uh, and I don't want to editorialize too much here, but the fact is that uh, everybody can get ahead of themselves very easily. Um, now, some of the protests are about saying, 
don't let this go without being thoroughly investigated. And that's a totally legitimate point. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that's a great use of the public voice. And and I think that's important in Ferguson. It was important in New York City in the 1980s and 1990s when we had so much murder and violence here that, you know, that the public outrage was an important part of, uh, you know, helping to push back crime and create a, a safer environment for everybody. But at the same time, the, you know, the mob is not always a very subtle, it's, not, it's never really a subtle tool, you know, so the same mob can end up both calling for the righteousness of public safety and for the, uh, the atrocity of uh, hanging innocent teenagers. I'm curious to know, you as a reporter, now you're not on the crime beat now, right? But you have been in your life? Yeah, sure. I've I've covered crime and courts, and uh, I write a column now called About New York, and crime comes across my menu of uh, tasks. So you must introspect a lot about this. Even good reporters do feed a kind of growing, you know, sense of what happened uh, long before we sh- we have any right to have a sense of what happened in, in a lot of crime cases, especially those of us who read passingly the odd article here or there, listen to a radio report or watch TV. What should we do? And what should should you and your fellow reporters do to avoid that? I, I, if I, had, I wish I had uh, five easy things to do, but you know, <laughs> I think one, one is to look back when you make mistakes and to see where you went wrong and, and Again, to return to the Central Park case, which I vividly remember after the crime happened, all of the newspapers in New York ran timelines. Here's what happened on the night of rampaging in the park, and at such and such a point, rocks were thrown at people on a bicycle, and then a homeless man's dinner was taken. And then the jogger left her house at this point, and then she was attacked at that point. Almost all of that information turned out to be wrong. <laughs> it almost always does, doesn't it? In the heat of the action, uh, yeah. the early reports are almost always flawed in some way. Yeah, and all of the papers ran these massive timelines, and months later, when the because the, the jogger had been in a coma after she was first discovered for quite a while, and it took the police detective several days to reconstruct her movement, so the time that they actually thought she had been attacked in the park was completely wrong. Nevertheless, we and the press had already all published these chronologies. Then there was kind of a backpedaling, uh, oops, it didn't happen at 10.30 at night, it happened at 9.15. And there was not a lot of reconciliation of those stories, how one could be so wrong originally, you know, and what the ramifications of that were. I wonder, you know, as part of the media-consuming public, myself, whether our hunger for stories, and really, let's face it, when it's stories about a crime of that kind that happened somewhere across the country, our hunger is really based on more like morbid interest and entertainment than it is on any real practical need to know, right? I wonder if, why does it need to trump the uh, importance of taking our time to learn the real facts? I have a theory, but it's only a theory. (laughs) I welcome your theory. Okay, my theory is that there's a a trinity of human needs. Food, sex, and stories. (laughs) And when you get down to it, we always want our stories. It does trump waiting for all the facts and the sober, kind of distant, cool, analytical approach. We're humans. We love stories. You know, at the end of um, the Central Park Five, the movie, um, there's a statement by uh, Craig uh, Stephen Wilder, uh, professor of history at MIT. Yep, great uh, guy. Y- uh, you know him? No, no, but I, I only knew him from the film, and I was so impressed with him. I, I was too, and he made a very powerful statement. Some might say overstatement at the end, but I, I, I want to uh, quote him. I want us to remember what happened that day, meaning the day of the, the rape and attack on this woman and then the subsequent railroading of the five kids, and be horrified by ourselves because it really is a mirror on our society. And rather than tying it up in a bow and thinking that there was something we can take away from it and we'll be better people, I think what we really need to realize is that we're not very good people. Uh, I'd be interested in your take on that. I, I think it has something to do with that almost salacious desire for conclusions that, that match our stories. But what's your take? 
Hmm. Um, I wouldn't argue that point one way or the other. I guess that's just not how I see the world. You know, we have our needs and we and we go out and satisfy them, and sometimes we do so destructively. And I, you know, as I say, I think stories are one of the basic needs that humans have, and so we get Harry Potter and we get the Central Park Five, and and they both, in some ways, are connected to the human psyche and spirit in the same ways. We we want a story of good and evil. I, I guess if we are bad people or we're not very good people, as as, as Dr. Wilder says, you know, maybe it's because we, we don't know when to stop. It, you know, it's so interesting to hear you say it because you are a storyteller. I mean, you are filing, yeah. you're filing pieces, what, a couple times a week, a lot of weeks, right? <laughs> yes, tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> you probably got a deadline right now. <laughs> yeah, not today. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you, you, you know, you regularly confront uh, the choice, I'm sure, of like, oh man, this would make a really good story. On the other hand, it's complicated. It's more complicated than I can squeeze into a cute quote or, uh, you know, yeah. 500 words or whatever you, you got. You know, so what do you do with that? There's a cynical saying in journalism, right? That never check out a good story. <laughs> Don't let the the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you just have to make sure you're not cheapening the truth. The truth is often a really damn good story. Too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've been um, bashing um, forensic science and uh, other investigative techniques quite a bit, and I just want to make sure t- that we add a little balance here because I'm sure people are asking, look. How widespread is this? Have you found just the glaring exceptions to a system that otherwise works well? Uh, now, I know that the Innocence Project, uh, the nonprofit that you, you um, well, actually, you've co-authored a book with its two founders, Barry Sheck and uh, Peter Newfeld, right? Yes. Uh, Fifteen years ago, we wrote a book called uh, Actual Innocence. Right. And I know that they are probably the most prominent organization that has um, you know, secured the exonerations of hundreds of people using DNA evidence. Uh, at last count, I think it was 316 mm-hmm. convictions overturned, if that's the right legal yeah. uh, uh, term. Uh, so they have exposed, obviously, miscarriages of justice in those 316 cases, but that's a drop in the bucket of the number of convictions that occurs every year in America. Um, just how widespread do you think false convictions are? Well, first of all, false convictions are not just limited to people who can prove their innocence with DNA. I think it's well over 95% of the cases. There's no biological evidence involved, so DNA is never a factor. So instead, you're relying on these other techniques, techniques that DNA, when it is a factor, shows are quite frail. And I think the percentage of cases that are wrongful convictions, I mean, not only unjust as a matter of process, but wrong as a matter of fact that an innocent person has been convicted of something they didn't do. I think it's a lot higher than the Innocence Project numbers would suggest, because they are so limited in what they can do. There is a um, a national registration on exonerations uh, that, I don't know their, their current tally, but it's, you know, in the several thousands. They define exonerations you know, they have some way of defining it, and, uh, you know, people might quibble with it, but there are a lot of people who get sent away for things they didn't do. Probably most people who do get sent away did do what they do. You know, the dangers of being complacent about that we're mostly right is that we are dangerously wrong at times, and being mostly right when you're flying an airplane, for instance, is really not good enough. It's not satisfactory. You're reminding me of a statistic you have, that for every 100 people sent to death row from uh, 2000 to 2011, nearly four others, this, this is from your book, were exonerated, ultimately. Mm-hmm. You said if the aircraft of large air carriers in the United States failed that frequently, there would be a crash every 90 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Wow. It's mind-blowing to me. I cover a lot of science in this show, this radio show. And uh, we do talk on the show a lot about the difficulty of doing science and some of the failures of science itself. 
you know, the inevitable gray areas where you really aren't sure whether the study was a fluke or not. And there's fraud in science, too. But mm-hmm. but we haven't even made an attempt in the criminal justice system to apply the lessons that hard sciences have learned about safeguards against bias, applying good statistical rigor, a lot of things. We haven't even attempted to do that on a national scale in our criminal justice system, when, as you say, the stakes are super high, uh, when it's life or death. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm going to be accused of being like a bleeding heart liberal in saying this, but part of the reason, I'm going to guess, is that the people who end up at the losing end of the process are so often considered throwaways by mainstream America. You can't go into the criminal courts in New York City, the lowest level courts, and not be struck by the sheer flood of brown and black faces in there. Our courts in New York, and I I think in many parts of the country, are a gateway through which we send many young people without a lot of regard for the impact on what's happening to them, uh, for things that ought to be handled in different ways. And that continues from, uh, you know, somebody having an open can of beer in the subway up to teenagers running around in Central Park and getting wrongly looped into a rape and attempted murder case. So, yeah, I I think we are complacent about it because of who the people are who are wrongly convicted. We're complacent about it because we don't care that the tools that we're using to try and create a more orderly and safe society are often not the right ones. They're too blunt for the kinds of problems that we're addressing. And I think we're complacent about it because we think, eh, good enough, close enough, good enough for government work. You know, 95%, right? Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, except if you're, A, one of the people who's in the 5% who shouldn't be in prison for something, or B, if you're the victim of the real criminal who was allowed to get away because you put the wrong person in prison. And in defense of police and uh, courts and others, we don't give them enough money or resources to do the kind of thing that you and I are talking about, turn it into the kind of rigorous procedure uh, with all the controls of scientific research. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a, a pretty big study coming out around... Uh, the first week of September uh, that I've heard about from the Department of Justice that is proposing precisely that kind of approach. And I think there's probably going to be funding uh, offered uh, law enforcement and criminal justice systems to study, you know, what are the best practices and what are the things that go wrong and how do you get the wrong stuff into the best practice category? How do you move forward and improve things? So, yeah, there, there really has not been... There's no incentive for anybody to do that. The, the, the best incentive is to, uh, if you make a mistake, to just keep walking and don't look back uh, for an individual. But that's not really good for the rest of us. Maybe that's what Craig Stephen Wilder meant, that because we have not mustered yet as a society the will to really change the system, we're all indicted. You know, I think that might be what he was, was after. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I couldn't agree more with uh, that. Well, Jim, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Jim Dwyer is a columnist for the New York Times. His latest book is False Conviction, Innocence, Guilt, and Science. It's available through iBooks if you happen to have a Mac or an iPad. And uh, before I take off, uh, one correction on something I said earlier when I implied that the Innocence Project was responsible for 316 DNA exonerations. Well, I double-checked on their website, and it says, in fact, uh, that they were involved in 173 of those cases. And by the way, uh, the total number of DNA exonerations has actually crept up a bit in recent days. It was uh, just reported that a pair of brothers in North Carolina were released from prison after serving 30 years for a murder they didn't commit. At long last, their innocence was proved by DNA testing. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back on these airwaves next week. 
And you can listen to past shows online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or via iTunes or SoundCloud, or any number of mobile podcast apps. Take your pick.